I lived in D.C. for a while and then in Colorado, and uh, my friends from those areas, um, they say, uh, culture, where do I get culture in Wisconsin? And I say, oh yeah, there's great places. I mean, there's a performing arts center, you know, here in Appleton for great cultures, great shows, national-wide shows come here. And uh, there's also great architecture um, in Milwaukee. If you ever go to the Basilica, great architecture. Frank Lloyd Wright from Wisconsin. Um, American Players Theater in Spring Green. Some, I think, the, some of the best acting I have seen. Um, a great place to go in the summer. Um, Devil's Lake. I mean, if you want to see beauty, the natural beauty of Wisconsin, that's where you go. Devil's Lake is a great place. But then my friends said, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about culture. I'm talking about where I would see and meet the culture of Wisconsin. Wisconsinites. Where would I see a typical Wisconsinite and find them? Well, I'd say bleacher seats at Lambeau Field, you know, on Sunday. You know, Hunter Orange, right? Generational ticket holders, tailgating, Miller time. I mean, that is the culture of Wisconsin. So I went to a game, and I was sitting in the bleacher seats next to a 70-year-old man who had a huge, big, white beard, did not say hardly any words to me at all when I sat down, kind of gruff, but knew all the kind of plays or what's happening during the game. He was serious about the game. But by the third quarter, as we had come back in the Packer game, both this man and I both had our shirts off and were hugging each other, rooting for the Packers in sub-freezing weather. Dan Kramer was there, so he knows it was true. He saw it happen. But, you know, here's this guy that was gruff, and now he's bought me a beer. We were sharing life stories. That's kind of Wisconsinites. And the thing is, you might say, what kind of picture is that? My pastor with his shirt off, with a bearded guy in his 70s, drinking a beer. But that is the same picture we're going to see. A picture that might jolt us. The great prophet Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, of Israel, of Yahweh, in the middle of the Mediterranean, in a storm, rolling dice with pagan soldiers. What kind of picture is that? What is going on here? The thing is, these sailors represent the culture that was at that time the ancient Near East, where nations were colliding against each other, where different ideas were coming to the forefront, different gods were being put up against each other. And these sailors represent the culture of that time. And I'm going to argue to you this morning that these guys on the boat, these sailors that are not even Israelites, not even Hebrews, not even God-fearing, will actually tell us, the people of Israel, today's church, the way that God rescues. The way that God rescues. These sailors, these people that are tattooed, if you will, people that are the culture of that day, that are rough around the edges, they will tell Israel, they will tell the church today, what the true God looks like. And how that God rescues. Well, let's find out together, shall we? 
Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 7. Let's pay attention to God's Word. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? The sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that through these sailors that we would see a picture of who You are. A God who is slow to anger, abounding in love, compassionate upon us. We pray these things in Your Son's name. Amen. Well, we are going through the book of Jonah this fall, if you're just joining us. And uh, we are going to be going through that until November. And uh, it's a book um, that is about God's relentless pursuit of people. God's relentless pursuit of people. Both people that are in the fold of His church, people that are um, in the fold of Israel, and also the people outside of the fold. It's God finding people. And sometimes we might think, okay, um, I'm in the church. I've been found. I don't need this. But this is the great message about the book of Jonah. It is written to Israel, written to the church. If any audience should be listening, it should be them. They are the ones that Jonah is speaking to. And the thing is, if you are, if you were an Israelite at this time, you would be looking at this book through the eyes of Jonah. Jonah would be the hero, the protagonist, the home team. He would be the one that you're rooting for. He'd be the one to say, yes, I love Jonah because he's a prophet. He's from us. I want him to do well. And then you would be rooting against the opposing teams, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, the, the sailors. These are non-Israelites. This is the, the visiting team. This is who we're not for. 
But here is the thing. Through this book, God is going to use the Assyrians, the sailors, the opposing team to shine light upon the character of the home team. To show where they have fallen short. In literature, we call it a foil, right? (laughs) The opposing person that shows where we lack. And that is what's happening here. These sailors are going to shine a light upon Jonah and upon us and where we lack. And this is the great irony of this book of Jonah. The irony is that Jonah was trying to flee, as we saw earlier, flee from these people, flee from the opposing team, flee from these heathens, these pagans. But now what has happened? (laughs) He's surrounded by them in a boat, in a storm. Obviously, God has a sense of humor. Jonah, you thought you were going to run, but now I've surrounded you with them. So, what wisdom are we going to get from these sailors? What are they going to tell us? I think they are going to tell us the way that God rescues. And the first thing we're going to see is that His rescue from God, He is the sole source of rescue. There is no other way that we can be rescued but from God Himself. So earlier we saw this in verse 5, that these sailors cried out to God in the middle of the storm. Now, if you're a sailor and you are seeing a storm where you're having to cry out, um, and this is your history of um, sailing, you know it's pretty bad, okay, if you're crying out. It would be like an airplane pilot in the middle of uh, the air crying out um, on the loudspeaker to all of you sitting down. What would you be doing if the airline pilot said that? Oh my, this is bad. So you miss, it is bad. This is horrible. And Jonah, of course, is sleeping through it. But then he wakes to what is happening. And the people, these sailors are saying, cry out to your God. We are all crying out to our gods for some kind of hope. Now, sailors are exposed to many different countries and lands exposed to many different gods. We can tell that they are polytheists. They believed in many different gods. And uh, they're pragmatists, really. They're also pragmatist sailors. What works? <laughs> if it works, we're going to do it. I don't care what it is. I mean, if it's lighting a candle, so be it. If it's praying to Yahweh, if that's going to work, so be it. They want a way that works. A God that works. A religion that works. Polytheists. Travelers. thing is, I don't think this picture is very different than what we see today. Instead of a polytheism and, and merchants, we live in a world of pluralists and globalization. A world that our many different religions are seen and shown more and more where the nations come to us, where we see pictures of different ways that people worship. And the pluralism of today comes down to this. What works for you, do it. 
Sure, if it works for you, go for it. That is kind of the message of pluralism. The message of globalization. Uh, I, I, like I, said, I like Richard Dawkins, okay? Do you guys know Richard Dawkins? Um, I shouldn't like him, right? I'm a pastor, right? You know, just like that. But he's an antagonist towards Christianity. He really doesn't like Christianity very much. Um, and really, it's not much for dialogue. It's kind of a shut people down kind of way. It kind of writes, writes book on new atheism and things like that. But what I like about Dawkins is that he exposes Christians. And he also exposes some of the thinking that people have. And I'm glad he gets the argument, okay? I'm glad it's not just like, oh, whatever's fine. He gets to the argument. And Richard Dawkins was in a debate, and uh, <laughs> this, this, I feel bad for this guy. This is a Christian guy who comes up at the microphone to ask questions, right, of Richard Dawkins. And uh, he's very passionate. And he says, how can you say there is no God? I have experienced God. I have been in his presence. He has spoken to me. The Holy Spirit has moved through me. I believe that Jesus exists. He's real. How can you speak against that? And Richard Dawkins says this to this man. He says, you can be as passionate as you want to, but the truth is this. If you grew up in Saudi Arabia, you'd have that same passion for Allah. If you grew up in Japan, you would say the same thing about Buddha. The only reason you're passionate, the only reason that you have such fervor is because you were born where you are, and that's why you worship the kind of God that you do. An argument, right? Well, this man kind of threw him off. But if I was this man, this is maybe the argument that I would have against Richard Dawkins. It would go a little bit like this. You know, the only reason you, Richard Dawkins, believe that there is no God is because you grew up in England. In secular England, around intellectual parents. How dare you say that I have transcended all religion? You too are caught in the culture that you are in. You see, you can't escape that. And when people say, oh, the only reason that people believe in God is because they grew up in the way, they are growing up in a pluralist culture that teaches them that they should believe that kind of thinking. So they too are trapped within their culture. We all are. Does that then give right to say that there is no God exists? No. In fact, Dawkins too has a belief about the way religion is. His belief that there is no personal God. That the God of scriptures is not true. And he is being ethnocentric himself by saying to others that there is no personal God. And that the God in scriptures does not exist. Please hear me. Let me make this argument to you. Maybe you too are in that place where you're questioning these things. Or have friends that do. I really want to be this a place where we don't shut people down. But we can talk about these things. I would say this. You can't evaluate a religion except on the basis of some ethical criteria. And that, in the end, amounts to your own religious stance. You can't evaluate religion except on the basis of your own ethical criteria. And at that end, it amounts to your own religious stance. So the argument says, oh, 
I just don't know. Or there's so many religions, who knows what's really true. That is a stance. That is a view. Don't say that, oh, I don't have to know. No, because you actually are standing by something when you say it. And the thing is, this is what happens to the sailors. That idea of tolerance, or who knows what God, whatever God works, I'll believe in it. They are pushed to the brink, aren't they? (laughs) They are pushed to the brink of their very lives, where they finally say, there is no more ambiguity. Where is God? What is really true? Why is this happening to me? Who is to blame? Why does it seem my life is cursed? They are finally saying what is truly true about reality because they are pushed to the place where they have to ask what is true about how the world is ordered and how it is made. (laughs) When someone says there's injustice, why is this happening to me? Why is this curse upon my life upon me? And then they say there is no God or is there ambiguity. They can't do it, can they? Because if you say there is no God and you say there is injustice, then you're saying there's a way that the world has been ordered and made from an outside source. So you can't say, oh, why is this happening? No, it just happens. It's just the way it is. Who cares? You can't complain about it. It just, there it is. But the thing is, if you cry out and say, why is this happening to me? Why why is the world ordered this way that this would happen? You are saying, there is a God that has ordered it in a way that it's supposed to be. And I'm not experiencing it the way I want to. And this is what's happening to these sailors. They are saying, what is happening to me? They want to know. And what they do is, they go to someone to blame. They want to find out. And look with me again in verse 7. Okay, this is happening. There's a curse upon us. Who is to blame for this curse? I mean, uh, in that day, they rolled kind of dice or lots to see who the person was to blame for this. Um, In our day, we watch political news uh, to see who we should blame for what's happening in our lives, right? But then they did this. And they find out Jonah is to blame. He is the one to blame for this, the way that the dice have fallen. And in Proverbs, it says that God even orders the lots, the dice, to show his will. And here, Jonah gives um, what I would call a creedal statement. Let's say uh, your kids took catechism, or you know the shorter catechism. It would be a catechism answer, right? Maybe not a lot of passion, but, oh, here's a statement of who God is. I'm a Hebrew. I believe in the Lord, Yahweh. And he is the maker of the heavens and the earth, a merism, meaning he is in control of all things. This is the statement that he gives. But you see the response of the sailors is not a creedal argument. It is this. What have you involved us in? (laughs) What have you done? Do you realize we're in this predicament because of you? What is going on? The truth is, 
all of us are involved in this storm. All of us, because other people's sin, because other people's choices, because the way the world is broken, we are all involved in a storm, a mighty storm that will cost us our lives one day, that will cost us hurt and pain and struggle. The sailors are starting to realize quicker than maybe others do that the storm has come upon them. Please hear me. We live in an age, especially in the United States, of apathy, ambiguity, indifference. It's not going to work. One day the storm will come upon you. Where the apathy no longer will have answers. The indifference will not solve your problems. Where you will have to say, who is God? Why is this happening upon me? For some of you, that's happening right now. For some of you think, I can just coast and not worry. Please hear me, I don't mean to be harsh. It will come. The storm will come into your life. Where there's laying in the hospital bed, where there's the death of a parent, a death of a loved one, your marriage falling apart, where you will say, who is God? Why is this happening upon me? And please, don't blame someone else. Because the storm is coming to you. I feel for these sailors. I feel for them because now they are facing the God of the universe, Yahweh. And who is going to be the one that tells them about who this God is? Jonah, that would stink, okay? Because he doesn't like you to begin with. And now he's going to tell you about his God. Not the best spokesperson for Yahweh, okay? Not the best person to tell you about who God is. And here is what Jonah's solution is. Explain, yeah, again, Jonah is giving a picture of who his God he believes in and what he's asking them to do. They say, what should we do to you? And Jonah's solution is this. Throw me overboard. Just throw me over. And you see uh, the picture that this book is giving to the Hebrews and the Israelites reading it. You know, pagans and heathens, they wouldn't care. They'd just throw them right over. I mean, they're just, they're just vile people. But is that what they do? No, they don't. They try to paddle to shore, to get to shore, to save Jonah. They try to do the good thing. Even these non-Hebrews, these non-Israelites, are even trying to do good things. Virtuous things. They're not just barbarians. But they're made in the image of God with virtuous things upon their lives. We had someone in our church recently. Um, they were getting help from someone, and this person knew that they were a Christian, and they were not Christian, a non-church person. And the person was helping this person in the church. And they said, this person said to the person in the church, you know, even non-church people can do good things, you see? Even unchurched people can do good things. Amen. 
Absolutely they can. Non-church people can do good things because they're made in the image of God. And I'll even take it one step further. You know what? Non-Christians and unchurched people can actually be more virtuous than us. (laughs) They can be better people than us. They can be righteous and good people. But you know what? (laughs) As much as they paddle, as much as they strive, as much as they work to get to get to dry land to try to save this man, to be okay themselves, they can't. Because in front of that God, no matter how good you are, no how virtuous you are, that is not what saves. And that's why I can look at other people that are good and virtuous and say, you know, you are better than I am. <laughs> and I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be really good and pious and good, right? No, you are a better person than I am. But let me tell you this. That virtue is not what saves me and not what saves you. Because nothing can calm the storm of this world except something else outside can propitiate the big word theology term, the rage and the evil and the injustice that is around us other than God Himself. I really love what these sailors say. Look with me in verse 14. It's before they throw Jonah overboard. They says, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Do you see what is happening here? For the first time, someone in this passage is crying out to Yahweh. And who is it? Is it Jonah? No, it is the sailors. Are they crying out to any pagan god? No. Do you know why these words are capitalized? L-O-R-D. These people that don't even know Yahweh, that have not even grown up in Israel, are now saying, Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the world, come and save us. Pagans are crying out to God when Jonah will not even do it. And you know this little thing that says, O Lord, have done as it pleased you? It echoes from the Psalms in Isaiah. Psalm 113 uses these exact same language. And when it's used, do you know what it says afterwards? No idol will save us. In fact, they will all be defeated. And only one God, you God, are the God of this world. Polytheists. Guys that worship other gods are now saying, only you, Lord, can save me. That is crazy. (laughs) That is crazy that that would be what happens. Trying to find my place here. I lost it. There I am. Okay. Great. Uh, uh, we, we play softball as a team, as a church. 
And uh, we have our own softball team, and we have our little Emmaus Road t-shirts in front. And, you know, there's the church leagues, and then there's the non-church leagues. And we don't play in the church league. We play in this non-church league. And when I go in and play softball against these other teams, um, there's a lot of language. Um, there's a lot of drinking, too, that happens at the softball games, before and after. And they're, they're rough guys that play softball. And here we are, we're like the church guys, you know, and we're bad, too, because we only won one game, and, you know, we don't swear at each other, and we don't get mad, usually, at the ref, and stuff like that, and, you know, these are rough guys. You know, my thinking sometimes is this. Oh, man, uh, these guys uh, are so far from God. Maybe if you kind of joined our culture, you'd finally be okay. Yeah. Maybe if you just stopped swearing and you tuck your shirt in. You know, maybe if you don't drink so much beer. You know, you finally do these things, you're going to be totally fine. We might say that about people at work. You know these guys at work too. Guys that are rough around the edges. Guys that you go... Great. Maybe they just need to find, you know, righteous living and they'll be fine. Do you know what this passage speaks to us and says to us? It says, you know what? God is going to rescue people the way he wants to rescue people. And he's going to rescue people you think he can never rescue. And he is going to enter into situations And if you think, oh, if they just join my way of living, if they just do it my way, then they're going to be fine. No, God is saying, I will rescue people even in those places. And I am the way of rescue. I am the one that will save them. I would hope, I would hope as a church, we would be a place where we say, we don't have to fit a certain church culture to be a part. (laughs) That if you're rough around the edges, don't come here. Then we say, you know what? I need as much rescue as you need rescue. I am in the much need of that grace as you are in the need of that grace. And that we would say to these guys, whether they're in the factory line, whether they're playing at softball, whether they're at the football game, wherever they might be, guys, ladies, that maybe feel, oh, they don't fit what I look like. That we would ask questions of them. What is the storm in your life? What is the things raging in your life? And what can rescue from it? And I'm going to tell you what the storms are in my life. Now I'll tell you what rescues me from it is not looking a certain way. It's not acting a certain way. It is ultimately the God of the universe, Yahweh. Coming down and saving me. That is the only way there can be calm upon the seas. I hope we don't exclude anyone. I hope we don't look at neighbors or co-workers and say they are without hope. Because here in this passage we see the ones that we think are without hope are finally getting it. Well, the people that think are fine are not getting it.
You know, part of the reason these guys were very upset about wanting to do this to throw Jonah off board is because they'd be killing an innocent man. They would be killing a prophet of Israel. And they know if they did that, you know, maybe Israel would be against them. People would seek revenge. This would not be good. This is the way wars are started when we do things like this. But then they finally say, this is what we need to do. And what happens here is something that should, is not very, uh, uh, I us say, uh, it's seen before in the Old Testament. It's actually going to be seen in, in the next month at Yom Kippur, right? You know, Yom Kippur, what they celebrate is what happened in the Old Testament, that um, they also did lots and throw dice. You know that? And they did it over what would be the sacrifice. Which things would be the sacrifice? Which goat? And one of the goats would be the goat of atonement, and the other would be the scapegoat. And what would they do with the scapegoat after they rolled the dice and found this is the one to take out? They would send the scapegoat out of the city. And the scapegoat was a picture of all that was unclean. Everything that was bad. And they would say, go, get out, because we can be clean. You will take everything. You are the unclean thing. And the same thing is happening here. Jonah is the scapegoat. He is being thrown overboard. He is being lost or casted. He will be the scapegoat. He is the unclean thing, so that these sailors will be saved. And be okay. And the great irony of this is this that Jonah is from Israel. He is a prophet. He is supposed to be clean. But then he is being casted out of the boat so that these Gentiles, these pagans, would be clean. Don't you see, this makes sense why Jesus says he is the greater Jonah. Were not lots cast for Jesus? Was he not thrown out of the city? Was he not the holy and righteous one that was the scapegoat that took our sins so that we would be free? You see... These sailors are seeing a picture, a glimpse of the gospel and the good news. They don't have a full picture of it, but they are seeing someone taking their sin for them. And how do they respond? They respond in worship. And we don't really see this or this, but nowhere, nowhere in all of the Old Testament does this kind of worship happen that we see in verse 16. It says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. We have a triple emphasis here. Triple. In the English, we don't see it. Nowhere is this kind of worship ever seen in the Old Testament. So really, the English should be, they feared a great fear. They sacrificed sacrifices. And they vowed vows to God. Yahweh. Pagans 
non-Gentiles, worshiping the God of the universe in that way. Jeremy picked a great song. It's a fitting song, isn't it? John Newton. Here's also a sailor, isn't it? A one upon a boat. One that the storms were so great. A slave ship. And he cried out to God on that slave ship. God, save me for what I am doing. A heathen, a pagan. Not a very good Anglican. (laughs) And he gave his life to worship God. God saved a man like that. And you know what he did? He went back to England. And he shook them up. And he said, you all go to church, but you enslave these men. What are you doing? And he started a movement among Christians. This outsider, this slave trader. He started a movement there to wake them up out of their apathy to see if you worship God, this is the way that you will be. I'm sorry, I'm going to be passionate, okay? You're just going to have to bear with me. We are so apathetic in the church in the United States. It is ridiculous. It is sad. If we believe, and we have the full picture, we don't have the half picture that they have, we have the full picture. If God gave his life to us to save us from the storm, would we not have this triple emphasis? Would we not vow vows? Would we not pledge our lives? We would not give all our income, everything we have, to say to others, this is the God of the universe that will save us. Money will not. Houses will not. Good kids will not. Only God will save you. And I am sure God will raise up those guys that play on solvable teams. He will raise someone up like that, out of that molasses, out of that apathy, to wake us up. Pray for that kind of person to be woken up, to finally go to the mill, to go to the places and say, God is real. This life working for the weekends is nothing. It took sailors to wake up Israel. It took sailors to wake up Jonah. Isn't it funny? The opposing team, the antagonist, shows us that we have a God who has mercy upon us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are glorious and You are good. Nothing can calm the storms except what your Son has done. The scapegoat for our sins. Let it jolt us. Let us wake wake us up so that we would see that salvation comes from the Lord. pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. (laughs) You might think, oh great, I've got to be passionate like that to be able to be saved. No. This table is what saves us. This is a picture of the God who saves us. 
This isn't a table for Emmaus Road or for Presbyterians. This is a table for those of you that would say, the only way that's going to calm the storm in my life is this scapegoat. This blood that was shed so that I might be saved.